Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Church, he is risen. He is risen indeed. <laughs> Throughout this service, I want you to think about what that means to you. Thanks. Thanks, so. Because he lives, <laughs> the hymnist said, I can face tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Today we're going to focus on the cross. We're going to focus on Good Friday right till Easter. (laughs) We're going to do the whole thing. Three days in one hour. No, I, I can't give justice to that, but I think it's important for us to look at the death and the resurrection and the life that is available to us, and that's what we're going to try to do here this morning. And my hope and prayer is that you would just engage your heart with both the Word and with Jesus, and, and be reflective in the things that He is speaking to you. And so to begin, we're going to look at the cross being necessary, and I think I won't have a lot of time to spend on each of these uh, components because we have a video and I want to share a piece of my testimony with you later on what the cross and the resurrection has meant to me. Um, I'd love to bring you in on that. So, but to begin with, you have to realize, and all of us need to realize, that the cross was necessary for salvation. And I won't spend the the time needed to really expand on this point, but it's important that we start there. Without the cross, there is no salvation because of Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. That is critical for us, and there's many other scriptures that we could expand upon that that would confirm this. All of us sin. All of us sin. In fact, 1 John goes on to tell us that if we say we have not sinned or if we say we have no sin, we actually both, we both deceive ourselves and we make God a liar. That's the words that is used. And I look at 1 John talks about the expect, you know, walking in the light is the confessing sinner, the repentant sinner, recognizing that. But the wages of our sin was death. One of these famous passages, many of you probably have it uh, memorized, although maybe in different versions. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the wages of sin is death. There had to be a penalty. There is, there is justice. And you know, when we take a step back, because sometimes we look at something like the cross, and we think, I mean, that seems so, like, why couldn't God just reach down and say, I forgive you? Right? Wouldn't, wouldn't that seem to make sense? Wouldn't that seem to be nice? I forgive you, and we'll just wipe the slate clean. But actually, you know, part of us, want, you know, we try to rationalize that way, but I think if we compare it to other injustices within the world, I think very quickly we realize that justice, there's a penalty tied to justice, and it needs to be paid. When you think of what Adolf Hitler did in the World War II, Does something in you cry out for justice? Does it feel like a sorry would not have been enough? What he did was so atrocious, was so awful that justice was demanded. I think of the Rwandan genocide and kids and women and children and and people being hacked apart with machetes simply because of what people group they belong to. And we hear of something like that, and there's, there's atrocities like this every day in the news, it seems like, somewhere in the world. 
We think of a, a child who is raised in a system of abuse where they are physically and sexually abused on a regular basis, and this happens way more often than we'd like to think of. And part of us, there's, a, there's a, an anger almost that rises up. There's something that rises up in us, and we say, justice is demanded here. There is a penalty that needs to be exacted. And you know, when we really bring it down and close to home, maybe we don't want to admit this, but how about when someone disrespects you? Or they lie to you? Now this is on a much smaller scale, right? This is very small, and yet you can probably think of times where someone has said something rude to you, disrespected you, maybe didn't, you know, they answered you, they, they even said what you wanted them to say, maybe their apology didn't sound sincere. And what do you feel like inside? They, they owe me something. There is a debt that needs to be paid. They need to fix this. And yet we know many of those debts are much smaller than others. And this is exactly because this part, this justice, this is a part of who God is. You can't escape it. And so sin, sin demanded a penalty. It demanded justice. And God is holy. He is righteous. He is perfect in every way. So in order that he could save the world, sin demanded justice, and he paid the price by sending his son and dying. That's why this is important. The cross was necessary for salvation. But once we realize that, there's a couple of considerations that we need to, to look at here, right? Because the father and the son, the father sending his son to die in our stead. So the first thing is the father ordained, right? The father ordained... Uh, Jesus' suffering. So we, we think about who crucified Jesus. Well, the religious leaders hand, handed him over to Pilate and the Romans, and the Romans crucified Jesus, right? I mean, those are the facts of the story. And yet, according to Isaiah 53, what I had read earlier, it was God's sovereign will, right? Isaiah 50, uh, 53, 5 and 10, yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. So the Lord, it was the Lord's good plan. And that's the next verse there. I think it's verse 10. It, uh, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and fill him with grief. This was the Father's plan for us. Look at this in Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You know, sometimes we think those small things in our life aren't important to God, those little hurts. And yet we don't realize that they're very important, so important, in fact, that he was willing to take all of those hurts and sins and struggles on his back and pay the price for them so that you could know freedom, so that you could know him. God has been doing this for thousands of years. He has, been taking, he has taken situations that looked grotesquely awful and evil and horrible, and he has been turning it around for good and using it to advance his kingdom. And I believe he's still in the business of doing this today for you and for me, if we will let him. But with this, so now we have the cross is necessary for salvation. The Father ordained Jesus' suffering. But with that, it's equally important to, to realize and remember Jesus the Son also embraced the suffering. He didn't reject it. It wasn't forced upon him. As some will say, how could a father do that to his son? This was God's good plan. 
The Father ordained it, and the Son embraced it. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, he and the disciples crossed from Jerusalem over to the Kidron Valley, ascending to the Mount of Olives, uh, to a place called Gethsemane. So that's where he's going, and that's where we get that famous story of Jesus is with his three closest friends, right? Where we get that, you know, he's going there, he takes three of his closest friends, and, you know, Peter, James, and John, and they go by themselves. You ever been in that spot where you're overwhelmed? You don't want to see the whole world. You don't want to see the whole world. You just want to see those that are really close, the ones that know you, the ones that love you. And you want to share that burden with them. And that's what Jesus is doing here. We find him sharing the burden with his three friends and he instructs them to pray. And he goes off and he prays. And this is what he prays. Look at this prayer. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And in here we see John 15, or 5, verse 19. You know, we talked about the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. And we see Jesus even unto death, even facing the cross. He is imitating the father, but that's what we see. If it be possible, he's still human. There's a human side of him of suffering. He knows what's coming. Now we know as the story goes, he returns to his apostles, his friends, his best friends, and they're up fervently praying, right? No, they fell asleep. They fell asleep. Jesus was alone. He was to face the crucible in his life. He was to face the hardest challenge he had gone through yet, and he was to face it alone. At one point, Luke says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And, you know, they wouldn't have understood it then, but they, uh, medical sciences tell us now that under the most extreme amounts of of duress and emotional stress that the human body can bear. That tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break and it will appear like you are sweating drops of blood. You know, I've had panic attacks before. I've had a few of those in my life. I've gone through a couple of dark nights. I'm sure many of you as well. I have never sweat what looked like drops of blood. But he did. Now an important consideration with this is, was the anguish because Jesus feared physical pain? It's a good question, right? Was he fearing, I would fear physical pain, amen, wouldn't you? I would feel that, I would be dreading what was coming, I'd be terrified, I'd be terrified. But yet Jesus himself told his followers to rejoice in suffering, right? Peter wanted to be crucified in an upside down cross, who wants that? He didn't think he was worthy. I mean, he didn't want to die, but he was willing to go and count it all, you know, a blessing to be counted among the martyrs. So why is Jesus under so much duress? Have you ever wondered that? What was causing him so much stress? Was it just the suffering? I think we have to understand what Jesus did and why it was fundamentally different than anything that any of us could ever go through. So of course you have the, you know, we already know when you suffer unjustly, that already hurts more. We know that, right? Right, when someone, go, uh, you know, attacks you for no reason, those, that kind of pain always hurts the most. But it's not even that. It's not even that that's going on because what Jesus is doing is he did what nobody else could do. The first Adam that came, right, he messed it up for everyone. Now we have this sin nature in our lineage. It's in our DNA. We cannot escape it. 
But the second Adam, Jesus came, and what he did is he took all of that sin and the death, all of that dysfunction, the sin nature, and he put it on his shoulders in one moment in time. I referenced a little bit before, I've had my own dark nights of the soul. I've, you know, I was talking a little bit about panic attacks that I've had in the past. Some of you will relate to that. You'll know what that's like, and it's awful. Think about some of the addictions maybe you've had. I've had those too. Maybe you're thinking of a character you just couldn't get over or an emotion that was just overwhelming to you and you were sad and hopeless all the time and you couldn't find freedom. Have you ever found, have you ever gotten to a place in your life where you thought the weight of this world in my life is too much for me to to bear? Maybe you felt that way in this last year. The weight of what's going on in the world with what I already had is too much for me to bear. Now I want you to think and realize because we're only carrying our own sin. Isn't that true? Our own dysfunction. Jesus took yours and mine. He took past and present and future. And he put it on his shoulders in one time. He paid the price for all sin so that all who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life with him. But though he dreaded the judgment, he was not coerced. He never shrunk back. He did it voluntarily. Look at this. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. And this is what he did. It's important for us to understand this. You know, now we understand, like, when you think of what he all did, what he put on his shoulders in one moment in time, it's little wonder he cried out, it is finished. You know, we focused on that phrase a little bit in the, at the prayer of someone on Good Friday, it is finished. You know, when you take a, a moment to pause and to reflect on what he did, those words mean so much more. It is finished. His suffering was finished. But our suffering was also finished. Nailed to the cross. Now we can understand what Paul is saying in Colossians. He canceled the record of charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory on the cross. And after he was buried in the grave, God raised him from the dead. Amen? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Yeah. (laughs) It's an honor to speak on Easter. It's an honor to be here with you at home too. It's an honor. But we are honored even more by being able to call ourselves a Christian. To take on his name because of what he did. Don't you just feel like you would do anything for him? What price would be too great for the king who gave it all for you? But he is risen. He is risen. For followers of the way, his death paid the price for our sins. His resurrection guarantees that death is defeated. It's our guarantee. He rose from the dead. We are justified and we will spend eternity with him. Those who call upon his name. And it's not about being perfect. We've talked about that last week. 
It's not about being perfect. But, you know, uh, the writer and atheist Richard Dawkins, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about him here on Easter, but he does make uh, a point that's, that's good. He says if the resurrection is not true, Christianity becomes null and void. That's what he says. And this would maybe be the one area I agree with him. If it isn't true, if it isn't true, then what are we doing here? But it is true. Luke 24, 1 to 7, for our, oh, that's the wrong one. No, I have it here. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the wrong one. This is the right one. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, I want you just to close your eyes and and picture this. I'm going to start over. Picture this. Get Get into that spot. Get your heart into that place. This is the first day of the week. It's early dawn. Jesus has died. They're mourning. Imagine you are one of those disciples who've loved him dearly. You've watched him perform miracles, give sight to the blind, deliver the demonized, give life to the dead. And now you saw him abused and broken and buried like a criminal. Now on that first day of the week, it's early dawn and they went to the tomb, Mary and some other women, and then they're taking spices they had prepared. They're going to prepare his body. You can imagine the grief that they're feeling right now the depth of hopeless despair, what they are feeling. And they come there and they find the stone rolled away. I don't know what you would have thought. They must have been wondering what happened. What's going on? Something is wrong. Where is his body? It was important that they do the rituals for the body. Where is the body? They did not. And then they go in and they find, they cannot find the body of the Lord Jesus They are perplexed about this, and behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? (laughs) Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. (laughs) He has risen. Amen. But there is much besides Scripture. I know the skeptic might say, but that's just your Bible that says that. But there is much evidence, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I'm going to cover just a few things. There is much evidence for the resurrection, for the life of Jesus, his death, and the resurrection. So some of the things that I'll just quickly go over here. The earliest accounts uh, date within a few years of Jesus' death and his resurrection. This is very important. A lot of these things, if you look at it through the lens of history, if, if this was legend alone, which some skeptics will say, if it was legend... Well, if you start writing a legend in the time when, you know, everyone who was alive is still there, someone's going to refute it and say, that never happened. There was no Jesus. He didn't die. There was no tomb. There was no empty tomb. And yet you don't find anyone refuting it that way. In fact, you find Jewish scholars and other people that, that confirm it. They just come up with different conclusions on why. So they're defending that it happened, but defending it maybe it wasn't because he was God. So that would be one of them, absolutely yes. The site of Jesus' tomb was known to Christians and Jews alike, so it wasn't, you know, it, the story of the tomb and the empty tomb didn't come along later. They were both historical counts, and both the Jews and the Christians report the empty tomb. The Jews just say it wasn't empty because he rose from the dead. Obviously, that would look bad for them. So that's very important. Uh, but the disciples, if you look at them, if you look for 
who would have had, uh, you know, who would have had motivation to steal the body? Because that's what the Jews had claimed. So very quickly, the disciples wouldn't have stolen the, bo- the body and then died for a lie. Have you ever thought about that? Why would the disciples who believed, now you can understand, maybe they want the body to be gone so that it validates them, right? That's, that would be human nature. You'd want to be validated and you wouldn't want to look like a fool. But would you die for that lie? Horrific deaths? And not just one, all of them. I don't think that's plausible. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. The Jews wouldn't have stolen the body and proved themselves wrong. That would also seem silly. And the Romans wouldn't have stolen the body and risked an insurrection. So we are left. If, if history tells us there was a tomb and a body in Jesus and he died, the tomb was empty, we are left with another example and that is, or another reason, and that is that God raised Jesus from the dead. But lastly here, and this is the most important for me, um, it's the last one here, but eyewitnesses also saw Jesus, so the disciples and 500 others saw him, there's, there's historical account on that. But the last thing is the experience of millions and millions and millions of believers since then who have experienced Jesus to be true. I'm going to share a bit of my story, but I'm not the only one here with a story. You have a story. We all have a testimony. I have experienced the living Jesus. He is not dead. I have experienced the living Jesus. And I know many of you would agree. And so would millions of believers. And I find it hard to believe that so many would just make up a lie. That to me is the hardest to believe. But I want to watch a video with you now. And I want you just to, again, I'm going to pray. Just get your hearts ready. We're going to focus on the cross a little bit here. Lord, would you... Lead us now on a journey towards the cross. Open our eyes to who you are. And Lord, would you lead us in the the wholeness of our hearts, any of those areas of compromise. Lord, I ask that today that we would stand bare, naked and exposed before you. Let's watch together. You need not say goodbye the people will shout my name Pilate will tell them there's nothing I've done to deserve this but they will refuse Pilate will stand me beside Barabbas a murderer and they will choose him over me Pilate will appeal to the priest insist on simply whipping me to appease their fury but they will shout it louder Crucify, crucify, but still you need not say goodbye. My hands will be tied to a post. The sound of the whip will ring in your ears and in your chest. The soldiers will peel the skin off my back. A ring of thorny branches will be pressed into my scalp until the blood runs into my eyes. Oh, but listen. You need not say goodbye. I will carry that cross. I will go to the place of the skull and there they will drive the iron stakes between the bones in my wrist with a hammer that will nail my feet into the tree. I will be raised up as the world waits for me to die. Nevertheless, you need not say goodbye. 
Between two thieves I will hang. You may hear me speaking to my father, your father. You may hear me ask him, why? But child, you need not say goodbye. What you won't see, what you won't hear, what you won't know until all of this is done is that in that moment, I was paying the penalty of your wrongdoing, every wrongdoing, every mistake, every act of envy, every word of hatred, every moment of violence and greed and spite, every selfish desire, every lustful thought, every moment of weakness and weariness, all the failures of human history will be in my hands and on my head. On that cross, I will suffer the wrath that was destined for you. Every guilty verdict fallen on me. Your punishment will be paid for in my blood and it will be enough. I will die on your cross. I will let out a final sigh. Know that I have loved you and you need not say goodbye. But if you must, if you absolutely must say the word goodbye, then say it like this. Goodbye fear. Goodbye sorrow. Goodbye rejection. Goodbye shame. Say it like this. Goodbye guilt. Goodbye condemnation. Goodbye all the regrets of the past. Look up at the cross and speak the words. Goodbye addiction. Goodbye chains. Goodbye hopelessness. Right here in this place, say it aloud. Goodbye captivity. Hello freedom. Goodbye loneliness. Hello belonging. Goodbye defeat. Hello victory. This is the end of the curse. This is the demise of the serpent. This is all debts paid. This is, it is finished. Goodbye all the powers of hell. Goodbye darkness. Goodbye dread. Goodbye every sin. Go ahead and say it. Goodbye death. salvation except through the cross of Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. The only way to the Father, Father God, is through his Son, Jesus Christ. Now why Jesus? He's the only one that was born into this world without sin. But more than that, he was a righteous one. And when you come to him, you're clothed in his righteousness. God no longer sees your sin. He no longer sees your own heart. He sees Jesus. 
Now, I don't understand all about it. There are many things about the cross and about salvation that I do not understand. And I'm not told that I have to understand it all. I'm told that I'm to believe. And that word believe means commit. I commit my life totally to Him. Jesus Christ from the cross says, I will save you. I will forgive you. I will change you. I'll make you a new person if you come to the cross by repentance and faith. Come to Christ. When you come to Christ, you come by the way of repentance. Repent means to change. To change your way of living and turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ and say, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And I know that you're the only one that can change me. our rebellion and rejection, God loves you. He loves you so much that he gave his son to die for your sins. And when Christ died on that cross, he became guilty of lying. He became guilty of slander. He became guilty of jealousy. He became guilty of the most filthy, dirty sins. Christ took the hell that you and I deserve. Now God said, receive him, believe in him. Put your trust and your confidence in him and I will forgive your sins and I will guarantee you eternity in heaven. It's all yours and it's all free. All you have to do is receive it. It's a powerful video we just watched. To share a bit of my my story, my journey, how I got here, and my my journey obviously begins when I was born. I was born into a wonderful family. We uh, first ten years of my life it was in Ontario, and our family was always extremely close. We always had a lot of fun, uh, but we were always taught the way of the cross. We were always taught the way to God. And dad was a preacher, Pastor Ray, 
is my dad, if you didn't know that. But he was a preacher and, you know, we would, we would go to church on Sundays and they would pray with us and then we would do family devotions. And their whole, we got to be a part of, you know, many of you will know a lot of the stories that Pastor Ray will share, uh, or that he used to share a lot when he was preaching all the time here, now he's with church renewal. But, you know, he'd share all these stories of these faith steps that happened in their journey, right? That brought him to the place of where he is today. And along that journey, I was a part of that journey. I was the youngest of four. And when I, when I started this journey, I was, I was enamored with the person of Jesus. He captivated my heart as a young boy. I loved him. I couldn't believe then, the same that I couldn't believe now, that he would die for my sins. That to me has never made sense in the most beautiful, wonderful way. It has never made sense. I'm holding here this Bible my parents gave to me. <laughs> All sorts of little kid stuff on the inside. Cat stickers. Mind you, those are on my new Bible too. But uh, <laughs> apparently it started young. <laughs> but uh, I got this Bible given to me on November 24th of 1990. Isn't that neat? It has my name on it. 1990. So I was seven years old when I got this Bible given to me. And and you won't be able to see this, but you'll see a bunch of writing on that page here. And uh, what you'll see is it says, I love Jesus. Very, very, and then much is crossed out so I can write more varies. Very, 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 bear with me. Very, 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 very much. Now I was ready to end it. And those were the words of a child but they weren't just words. They were the cry of my heart. As a young boy, I was reminded of this when I was going through this a few years ago. I have Isaiah 6, 1 to 9, and verse 11 written down here because reading through the Bible then as a young boy, very young, uh, this is the passage that stuck out to me, that captivated my heart as I looked at a holy God. I remember reading... In Isaiah 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe had filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet. I was fascinated by this. And two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty the whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I have lived among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See? This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I said, Here I am. Send me. 
here I am, send me. Those were, <laughs> those were the desires of a, of a little kid. Uh, I wanted to do anything. I thought he died for me. I always thought it would be the most wonderful thing, not understanding the death rate, but the most wonderful thing to be able to die for him. But the story doesn't end there. When I was 10, we moved from Ontario to Manitoba, and within a short period of time, my mom started getting sick, and dad went on the truck, and everything was different, and everything changed. But nothing had changed. I just didn't realize what hadn't changed is that God was still with us, but with dad being gone and us moving and mom now being sick and we thought she might die, I was terrified as a young boy, so afraid of fact, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it at the time. It was only years later that I could see what was going on inside. But as I contemplated and thought about my mom dying, my heart got hard. This heart that said, you know, to that question, whom shall I send, send me? suddenly felt a little bit different as I thought about what seemed like a large betrayal from the Lord God. I never, I never struggled with, you know, does he exist? That's always been clear to me. He exists. I know he is God. I know that. I was raised to know that. I've heard him speak. I have experienced him. I have witnessed the answers to prayer. I have seen the miraculous. I know he is God. But yet suddenly as a young boy, I, didn't know, I no longer knew if he was good. And I saw my parents had given up everything and taken up many, you know, many steps of faith following him. And I just couldn't reconcile as a young boy, how could a loving God afflict my mom in such a way where she's going to die? Why would he take her away from us? And I couldn't reconcile. how he could be good when he has the power to change it, but he doesn't. I was too young to see the, the miracle that was already happening, the fact that she was being sustained. I didn't realize being young, the work that he was doing in her heart and how that would change her and my dad's relationship forever and the, and the way they move forward. I, I didn't see any of that. I just saw what was being taken away from me and in my heart, I got angry and I got bitter and I made a very strong decision. That part I remember, it was very clear to me that I no longer love the Lord God. I hate Him. So I began to devise ways. What are the things I, I actually, I wanted to be bad. Anything that I knew was against his law, those were the things I wanted to do. I wanted to spite him for what he had done to my family, for what he had done to me. So at a very early age, I started experimenting, got, started with smoking and drinking, and, and then started dabbling with drugs as, as much as I could get them and started having sex way too young, thought I had it all figured out. By the age of 14, I thought the only thing keeping me from being an adult is my age. 
and things continued to spiral. At 16, I got arrested and let go of alternative measures. And by the time I was 17, I moved out. And as soon as I moved out, I started selling drugs. I quit, I, I dropped out of school. I made it my mission to, to destroy others. Anyone that followed the way, anyone that professed to be a believer. My, my biggest goal was to always show them how hip, hypocritical they are and show them who God really is and what he's really like. I was so offended at him for what he had done. I would get into drugs and I, got, I spiraled into addiction. One drug into the next and ended up in the pit of a meth addiction. Ended up sitting at 130 pounds looking gaunt, looking dead, looking like the living dead is what I looked like. And I just wanted to crush, I wanted to hide this pain that was going on inside. And I didn't even know where it was coming from because I thought I was king of the world, I was in charge of my own destiny. But inside I was just falling apart, I was depressed, I was suicidal, I was anxious, I was so wrought with fear. I just tried to control everyone around me and control people and a bunch of bad relationships finally landed me meeting this wonderful, wonderful woman. She's here today. But I met her and Louise Dirksen. She was Robinson at the time and when I met her within a few months, she was pregnant. We weren't ready. For, we were kids. We weren't ready to have a child. And so we determined very early on that we weren't going to keep him. My kids know this already. So we continued on this path, spiraling out of control, using more and more drugs, abusing them, trying to run from our responsibilities, determining in our heart we didn't tell anyone that we were pregnant. We didn't tell anyone what was going on. We were just going to hide the whole thing. I don't know how you do that or what was in our minds, but that's what we thought. And then suddenly, January 28, 2003, she goes into labor, and here we are, we're in the Steinbeck Hospital, and I'm there, I didn't even want to be there, that shows what kind of person I was. And out comes this baby boy that we had determined not to keep. We, we thought we, he wasn't he wasn't wanted. And I saw this boy, and for the first time in my life, I, I didn't even know what was going on inside. There was this, this turmoil inside. There was these feelings. I, didn't, I couldn't put my finger on what it was. I felt lightheaded. <laughs> Maybe this is normal for guys in the delivery room. But I was spinning, and Suddenly, I, I had this thought, it was, the, it was the Spirit of God, and people have asked me, how did you know it was God speaking? You weren't even a believer. You didn't even know He did that at the time. And my answer is always the same. I, I suppose if you're God and you want your voice to be heard, your people will hear your voice, whether they believe it or not. And I remember being in the delivery room and being so confused with what was going on, and I, I'll never forget the words, Stefan. The feeling you feel, you're feeling is love, and it pales in comparison to the love that I have for you. And I started to cry, instantly I started to cry, and I went and I reached down and I pinched my inner thigh, and I said out loud, no, I'm not ready for you yet, 
which I'm sure they thought was talking about Austin, who's here today. <laughs> but I wasn't talking about him. I was talking about Jesus. I wasn't ready for him yet. There was reasons why I couldn't go back. But seeing this boy, hearing God speak, this began a journey over the next year and a half of change for me and Louise. There was so much change and suddenly my family are back into our lives and they start ministering to Louise and Louise, my wife, she gives her life to Jesus and then we get engaged and we get married and a short period of time afterwards and I was such an awful person to be with. Just to give little bits of examples, I wanted, I wanted for my son, I wanted for, for my wife, I wanted for them to, to know Jesus, to go to church. I wanted for them to have the things that I had thrown away willingly. You see, I thought because I knew what was wrong, I knew, I knew what I was doing, I thought there was no way God would ever accept me back. But despite wanting the best for them, I made every step of the way hard for my wife. Probably because of my own fear and insecurity, I don't know what it was or because I was lost and broken. I made every step of hers difficult. And then on August 27, 2004, I'd started coming to church periodically. And you know, there's often the, the song of the, of the month, <laughs> right? That we learn, and at this time it was come just as you are. I'm not sure if that's what it's called, but it come just as you are to worship. You know the song, come just, come just as you are to worship. That song. And I would hear it in, in the, you know, in church and I would start to weep. And here I am, this drug dealer, this strong guy, this fighter, this, this tough guy, right? And I'm crying like a baby every time this song comes on. And I think this is the most ridiculous thing ever because I don't even like this kind of music. Why am I crying? I couldn't figure it out. So I would sit down in the, pu in the chairs here, not here, but the old sanctuary, and I'd pinch my inner thighs, and I would just pinch it until it hurt a lot so I could kind of get my focus off. So I figured August 27th was the day this happened. I thought, you know what, I just gotta, I gotta hear this song by myself. Like I gotta go somewhere where no one can see me cry. I have to play it by myself, and we're gonna see what is it about a song that can make me cry. And so I, I pirated it, which was the least of my crimes back then, and I, I burnt it onto a disc. I didn't care, didn't have Spotify then. And I went and I put it in my car, I'm driving, and I start playing this song, and this song starts playing, and it's come just as you are to worship. And as soon as those lyrics, give me a second. As soon as those lyrics began to play, that voice that had spoken to me a year and a half earlier spoke to me again. And I knew right away is why the song had captivated my heart. Because he said, Stefan, I know who you are. I know what you've done. You see, the thing that was keeping me from giving my life back to him was I was stuck on this whole unforgivable sin. If you know what is wrong and you do it anyways, this is unforgivable. I knew better. You ever felt that way? I know better. I know I shouldn't do this and I do it anyways. How can there be forgiveness for that? How can there be grace big enough for those kinds of sins? It's one thing to make a mistake. It's another thing to willfully hurt someone, to willfully spite them, to willfully hate. 
And as I listened to that song by myself, the Lord said to me, Stefan, I know who you are. And I know what you've done. And I love you anyways. I want you to come just as you are. And I remember hearing that, it was like, I don't even know how to describe it to you. It's like the best moment of my life. I couldn't believe knowing all the things that I had done, knowing everything, all the people I had hurt, the ones I tried to destroy, that God could see me a sinner like that and say he loves me anyways, despite knowing those things. And that's when I got my Christianity a little bit mixed up. It had been a while and lots of drugs in between being raised in the right way. And I thought, I got to get home. I got to go home and I got to kneel at the bed because that's how you give your life to, to Jesus. I was a little bit rusty on the whole process. But uh, I thought, you go to your bedside, you get on your knees, you fold your hands, and you invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And so here I am behind Lowen Windows. That's where I was hiding in the back there where no one could see me in, in my car. And I'm speeding home now. Like now I am speeding to get home because I'm just, in my mind, I'm thinking this is the best moment of my life. And with my luck, I'm going to die before I get home. Like something bad is going to happen that's going to prevent me. Now finally I'm ready. Finally I realize he'll take me. <laughs> that he loves me just the way I am. And then I'm going to get pulled over. I'm going to crash or something on the way home. And I drove home, got home to 24 First Street. And I ran, literally ran inside and dove to the floor by my bed. And I said, Jesus, I'm yours. If you'll accept me, I'll follow you anywhere. That's what I told him. If you will accept me the way I am, I will follow you anywhere. I was back to my original commitment. Whom shall I send? Send me, Lord. If you'll take me as I am, send me. I'll go for you. Obviously, there's much more to my story after that. There was a whole journey out of many sins and bondages and addictions, but I want to close this part, and I want to do some reflection time now, and then we had less worship at the beginning so we can have more worship at the end because this is about a response to an almighty God who today, I don't care who you are or what you've done, he is extending his hand to you today and he's telling you, son, daughter, I know you by name. I formed you in your mother's womb. I know all of the days of your life, every mistake, every success, every failure, every fear, every thought, and I have made a way for you to come just as you are. So I think the appropriate place to start is we're going to pray and then, and then I'm going to give you some time to reflect and then we're going to worship. Lord Jesus, today we are humbled. We are humbled by what you've done for us that you, the King of glory, would take the punishment of our sins, that you would allow yourself to be tortured, beaten, ridiculed, mocked, that you would allow nails to be put through your hands and feet, that you would take our 
punishment onto your shoulders and pay our debt. So today, Lord, we, we recognize that you know us by name. We hear you calling us by name. Today, Lord, we commit. We want to respond to you and we commit our way to you. If, if you don't know Jesus, then I'm going to pray this prayer for you. Lord Jesus, today I recognize you for what you've done. I don't understand it. I can't explain it, but everything in me wants you more than anything else in my life, more than anything I've ever wanted before. So today, Lord, I realize that you are who you say you are. I thank you for dying for my sins. I thank you that you were raised back to life and that you are seated next to the Father. I thank you for paying the price for my sins. And today I receive with gratitude in my heart your free gift of salvation. And Lord, I commit to making you Lord of my life. And when I fall, Lord, I commit to getting back up and trying again because you are worth that and so much more. For the rest of us, I'm gonna do a prayer of commitment, recommitment. Lord, we recognize we have known you for, for however long we have known you within our lives, but in looking at what you've done for us and the way you continue to call us and the incredible kindness that you display to us, your people. Today, Lord, we just want to confess to you any compromise in our life, any half-hearted Christianity, lukewarmness in our lives, unbelief. We just confess these to you as sin. Any area of our life, Lord, where we have wanted to hold on to us, to live our life, to steal glory from you, we confess this as sin. And today, Lord, we exalt your name. We lift you high above our lives and we commit ourselves, we recommit our lives to you, the only God, the only true God, the King of glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to put, uh, you'll see some instruction on the screen there, and if you have your journals, uh, the worship team is going to be playing some music. They'll lead us into this, so you just, you just go with the flow. But if you have your journals down, I want you to reflect on what does Jesus' death and resurrection mean to you? What's your story? What did he save you from? Then I want you to praise him, praise him for what he did for you, but also allow his spirit to reveal in your life if there's any areas of compromise. Hebrews says that he resist the temptation to the point of shedding blood. If there is compromise in your life, I would invite you today to turn from those things, to confess them as sin and to give it up to the Father. So let's do that now. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204 204- 326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.